I will not hesitate. My orders are sa police, pati military, pati mga barangay, shoot them dead. I will not hesitate. My soldiers shoot you. Wala akong pakialam putang ina ninyo. Good day, everyone. This is Ramblings of the Quarantine, episode 4. I am Paul Segei. We got IT guy right here, and we have a special Hello. guest, Mr. Ryan Dave Ryla. Sir, how are you? Hello, everyone. So, good evening. Um, I'm quite fine, but, you know, under quarantine still. <laughs> yeah. um, tell us more about yourself, sir. Well, um, currently, I'm an instructor for political science and the social sciences. And i um, currently affiliated with USJR. But disclaimer, um, the, I'm, I'm going to share my views, not the stance of the institutions I am affiliated with. So these are personally my views and has nothing to do with the institutions no, that I'm currently affiliated with. So that's it. Um, sir... Also been a guest man the answer sa in um, the free man uh, news uh, newspaper which you talked about the dengue problem here in Cebu. Uh, could you tell us more about that sir? How and um, why and also your updated stance on that? Dengue uh, on was I was it dengue? <laughs> well, I forgot some some involvements that I was in. That was way back. Um, the latest one I did that I did with a newspaper, I think that was in Sunstar. Uh, they, they sent uh, they sent someone to interview me on um, on women empowerment. That was around last March or last February, and um, they made that interview. And it was about how women were able to to expand their roles not only in in um, not only at home but also in in many affairs outside of the home. No, so you have women taking on traditionally male roles, but now there's a there's a leveling of the playing field. In fact, politics, which used to be male dominated. Has now become has now become uh, what we call a contentious space, wherein many interests now devolve, uh, revolve in not only women, but also other many other interests as well. No? Because the key the key thing we need to remember about about our time, it's all about identity. It's all about identity, uh, not simply identity in terms of. Um, what do you call this in terms of gender roles and orientations but also identity on the scale of nationalism ethnic identity and perhaps even more 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 important now what kind of identity do we have in a reality wherein we rely on the internet so there's a growing there's a lot of movements regarding identity and it's the one of the main forces of politics today 
So last month we saw what happened with the with the in the in the wake of of the killing of the this man Joy, um, George Floyd. Oh. So yeah. So yeah, identity, identity. Um, re- with regarding also, sir, with um the women empowerment that you also believe, uh, we also share that view. And then, how do you think, sir, we would um, bolster that when, for the example of Miss Fabel Pineda, where she was um, rape slain by police personnel, sir? Uh, moment, huh? Come again? Um, was how, 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 um, see, Miss Fabel Pineda, um, a, a woman, ah. yeah, of um, minor age, where we're in an age where we're supposed to respect women and empower them always. We have police officers that do otherwise. How, how do you think um, we should go about and help bolster the ideal that women are always equal? Well, yes, that's uh, well, no, that was a tragedy, no? What, what happened yeah. with Abel on on that account? And I I believe the the persons who were who were accused of doing that were were already under investigation and under custody as well. Um, yes. On that, that's well, that's a very that's a very interesting phenomenon because I don't think it's an isolated event. If we look at back through the if we go back a few years, no. We we see that there's a that women's women's groups like Gabriela and many other groups, um, they are noticing they're noticing a, a harder stance, or they're noticing a, a difference no in in the way um, not only the police but in the way um, the Duterte administration has pronounced has made pronouncements that actually discriminate women from from the from the dangerous pronouncements of shooting um of shooting female npa members in the vagina in the bisong as they said and from many of the misogynistic comments um we can see that um this this change is coming from the very top of government itself because of because of what the what the president says no so yes so maybe the detractors, or uh, sorry, not the detractors, but the supporters of the current president saying that, oh, it's just a joke, it's just anything. But you know, his words have very, well, have very heavy implications because it, because we have to remember the executive is the head of uh, of the of the bu- government bureaucracy in general, and in in a system where in president is actually um, exercising very broad powers. And almost un, almost unchecked in what he does, then it becomes a problem when when character is put into question. Who leads will also reflect how the system views certain certain things like or certain aspects of society like women. So I think that's a it's a systemic problem. And what happened to Fable is is um is an effect of this systemic problem of how how officials and how government in general views women. Although it's enshrined in the constitution that women are very important in nation building, but in practice, it might be a bit different because again, this has something to do not only with 
with the problem of government. We're in, uh, we're in Filipino culture means despite all the years of of um, reforms and the growing participation of women in daily life. Yeah, you know, I, I think we can see it also a lot at our daily lives. Yeah, it's very deeply rooted in our culture. Like, I mean, even now you see hear a lot of like, "Hum, you're gonna take that job, de ba babay mga like, oh, this job is for men, this job is for women." You still have those with like, mga big positions or like, um, places where you hold um a lot of power basically. And then yeah, you see, I, I don't know. I've personally I've seen it in my life. Said na people are like. Ah, babae man na, or you'll still hear the ah, babae man good, and then like this assumption na being a woman makes you inferior in some ways. Yeah, um, it like if you're looking at the Philippines from a point of view of the foreigners, where you could, you would assume that the Philippines is a very progressive country because we've had two women presidents already, and um, multiple women set sit in seats of power in 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 senate in congress but that still does not reflect how how women get treated in their daily lives where where catcalling is still very is still very present and prejudice prejudice towards women is always there so this system of oppression against women should should be um should be cut down first but when we cut it down you have to start from the top because this guy right now that's sitting a very misogynistic man of hate, a man that that encourages rape jokes and emboldens yeah. his support. Hmm. Yeah. So it's it really has something to do with leadership, no? Because as you mentioned, yes, that's correct. We have two women presidents over the past what thirty years, and um, but these women have to fit into the role of um, a role that is largely made for, for men. No? For example, we have Poe Aquino, who had to make hard choices in regards to preserving the Republic in the very early days where kuditas were happening left and right. And then later on, two decades later, um, we have Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, who, who basically waged a brutal anti-terrorist, anti-insurgency war in Mindanao in his in her time no so she had to adapt to to tools and to techniques in governance that have been used by that have been used exclusively by men and have been used for men in general so even we have women presidents you have to remember that they are put in the seat in the they are put in an institution that has been tailored made tailor made for for men so that's how that's how um, that's how interesting this dynamic is, no? So we may have women presidents, but they are also um, forced to act in the expectations set by men and for men. Yes, that that is mm-hmm. very much true. And then also with with um, Gloria Macapagal's um, war against insurgents, or one one of those um, people that waged war and was also um, a help to Miss Gloria. I mean. Madam Gloria Macapagal Arroyo was this the national security advisor right now, which is Her- Hermogenes Esperon. He's had um, multiple yes. issues with human rights abuses under his term as chief um, chief uh, national head, head of, of yeah chief of staff of the 
Philippine Army. And now this guy is also gonna take in the seat of the anti-terrorism law where he gets a seat, the DOJ gets a seat, and not even minorities get a seat in that, sir, where, where those minorities They're are the ones that's most vulnerable in that. So, yes. Um, that's the, that's the... Yeah, more Siguro if it was a more representative law and then um Siguro if more women sat in those um chambers where they could actually bring neutrality and a level headedness of these um war uh warmongers mongers I believe we could have a, we could have a better fight against terrorism, Siguro sir. What what do you believe? Mm, I think the the one. I think the problem of uh, terrorism in the Philippines is that um, it's a one. It's a, this is a this is a problem of an of unaddressed unaddressed governance from the past. No, um, unaddressed concerns primarily. For example, in Mindanao, you have the largely. Um, the largely neglected, marginalized communities of Lumads and the Muslims in general, no? Mm -hmm. Where in, um, back in the day, back in the 50s, in the, throughout the 70s, the, the Muslim community and the Lumad community have been steadily pushed back from their, from their, um, what they considered as their home, no? Their land. So they've been pushed back under what we call the Homestead Act in, um, Filipinos coming from Luzon and the Bias were were resettled en masse in Mindanao and that created um, tension between them which erupted with the rebellion of Nur Miswari in the uh, in his Moro National Liberation Front and later on a splinter group MILF and then after 1996 more groups came out Abu Sayyaf etc so all of these problems these are problems of um, not only ethnic identity but also marginalization where many people feel that they have been left behind and then you have the another another insurgency which is um, the NPA no new people's army they've been waging it since 1969 so can you imagine 1969 that's about 50 years so they've been waging this this um, long campaign but where do they get their support they get it from the marginalized farmers from the peasant class in in society wherein they are um, wherein they are always oppressed by the landlords, which which still prevails in Philippine society in general. So, and they are and they are um, put in the margins because they 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 run the in they run one of the most profitable industries in the Philippines, which is um, tenant farming. No? So mm -hmm. all of these landlordism, um, ethnic identity, marginalization, they created the twin insurgencies that we now face and these twin insurgencies also um also give us gives us an idea of what terrorism in the philippines is no um is it sim because we need to we need to clearly define what is terrorism is it simply rebellion and acts of sedition or is terrorism the act of let's say bombings etc that have been faded lately by um by Islamic separatist groups, no, the the most I think the most dangerous attack came recently with with um what was that? yeah Marawi yeah with Marawi no? the Bangsamoro uh, no not Bangsamoro but the BIFF man sila yeah the, the, another splinter group from the Abu Sayyaf no 
the the Maute, the Maute groups. These so problems regard, are. Sorry, continue. continue. Um, like yeah, as you've said, sir, about that these problems are, um, mo- most of these um terrorist organizations are state um what's about this state like the state made it to be because they're neglected and then now that that it's supposed to be that's a state that made this problem of rebellion and sedition of the of some rebels this anti-terrorism law doesn't even know how to categorize these people and it's such a broad brush to put into lava where you could actually be imprisoned for a very long time mm. Well, the, the state did not make these problems, but they cert- the state certainly neglected these problems long enough for it to foster into um, outbreaks of violence, no? and of course the creation of uh, movements that struggle against the Philippine state. Um, did Will the new anti-terrorism law curb this? I don't think so. Because while they can label, they, can, they have given broad powers to the police and to the Philippine uh, military to to basically um, designate who can be who is a terrorist according to their intelligence etc they're not really addressing the root causes of the problem which are yeah. poverty marginalization and underdevelopment in the provinces so no matter how how good or how, no, no matter how broad an terrorism law is so long as the the root causes exist there will always be um, groups that will pop out and will try to contest the power of the philippine government because in their eyes the philippine government whom they have long been neglected is not legitimate and so and so without taking out that cause this anti-terrorism law really is is it doesn't really address the problem no it's like uh it's like a very strong version of um, a medicine for fever, but it doesn't make the fever go away. Yeah, it just gets rid of the s- symptoms, no? like not the actual sickness that's there. Yeah, we're, um, yes. we've tackled this right. in our previous podcast where um, Mr. IT Guy actually said that where the problem here is also ideologies and then you cannot kill an, an ideology through violence because people are just going to keep growing if that ideology is strong and then if you don't address these problems that they want and that they actually needed they're just gonna keep growing and growing until everyone's gonna join in because the government has failed to care for its people already so um, yeah it's it's like yeah it's like they're drawn to those ideologies like let's say a communism because in communism and it's the their their idea of communism i believe is the ideal kind of communism where like it's equal for everyone and of course they'd want that because oh, yes like it's been like uh, for pila na years they've been neglected and they they don't see a solution for them anymore they don't think uh, our democratic rep- republic can offer them a solution and it's like it just draws them closer to to that ideology okay? they think it, it's going to be the, it's going to help them pull out of their current situations. Yes, that's that's true. No, um, I believe it was in the book called "Making Mindanao" by Professor Patricio Abinales. Um, he mentioned that these problems have existed long before the Philippines was independent from American rule. No, so there's a lot of factors involved here, especially the factor of who gets to have resources 
and that's what that's one of the priorities of politics a eh? distribution of, of resources etc and um, according to to um, according to what priorities do we set who gets what when and how and um, in that regard yes that largely in Mindanao because we're talking about um, that the context of the context of the anti-terror law it's most fun I, I believe it's most going to affect Mindanao in general because um, there's a lot of there's a lot of areas underdeveloped there and that has suffered for decades of Pano conflict uh, so yeah um the, the problems the systemic problems of Mindanao and also the problems of inequality there has really created the impetus for for these groups to come in and that's not to mention that how do they get their funds no so they have to fund it perhaps illicitly so we are seeing for example reports back in 2017 2018 when Marawi was um, eventually liberated from from the multi group that these groups are also dealing in in drug trafficking no so that's a that's a very interesting link that um, these terrorist groups are also doing illicit activities to fund their operations and that also creates ripple effects throughout throughout wherever they are yeah, it really affects the society. Somewhat, nga it's the, the the drugs drugs they're selling and they're like giving them like access to it. Nahin on, and it's, it's like sir, so you're, sir, you're saying nga, it's like um just that neglect and like the that uh, like the things that are lacking there is what's inviting you know on all these groups, diba? And it's, yeah, it is. I don't know, sir. Like, I think nga, it's um a very short-sighted said nga law this anti-terror law nga they're doing because yeah as it said like we just said talked about nga they really aren't addressing the roots and they're just kanang creating it's not the, the right kind of solution to the problem pretty much um so mm. would you say that um marawi could have been duterte's one achievement against terrorism if he actually re made and rebuilt it after the siege it could have been one of his crowning achievements in the regard that uh, Marawi would be like hitting several birds with one stone for this administration. One, it would affirm his Mindanaoan roots, no, that he is actually for development of Mindanao. Two, it would affirm his commitment to um, to stamp out um, the problems of his one of his native homeland in Mindanao, and that would also serve as an as a boost to his image of of um, what's been happening under Tokang and third I think it would have it would have the rebuilding of Marawi would have boosted the local economy to such a degree that even even the administration can can boast about the recovery of Mindanao so that's that's one thing that's been that's been um, perplexing me that has been confusing me for years why Mindanao is not the focus of this administration's um, development plan when in fact the president himself keeps on repeating in his narratives that he is a son of Mindanao so why not help the why not help Mindanao in the first place it's been nearly what three years and yet Marawi is largely unrebuilt no it's still it's still a ruin so yeah that's that's one thing that it's really confusing but um, with with millions of donations from international agencies, he could have also he could have rebuilt it in in a few months already because built in 
the the money donated to the Philippines was already in billions, and and this man, this man hasn't done anything for the country, but has just plunged us in debt, and also his his finances hasn't been audited since Serba, so it's a very sketchy thing what he's done with the Marawi funds. What? Yes, that's the that's the thing, no, about Marawi. Um, it could have been one. It could really have been showing signs right now of recovery, um, in the sense that um, it would have been, it would the, the population would have returned. There would have been more commerce, etc. And I think what's what's more tragic now is that um, Marawi barely even got off its feet once again, only to find itself in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. So it's uh, it's really fun. It's really being put down by circumstances outside of its control. Um, what what about um this petition, sir? That these lawyers have filed against the anti-terrorism. How how do you see this? How like do you believe that this would work? And do you believe that um a majority Duterte appointed Supreme Court would actually do its job? Politically speaking, that would be one that would be nearly impossible, considering that um, Duterte has, um, as you correctly pointed out, has recently um, appointed many in the Supreme Court, not to, to replace um, not only Justice Carpio, but also but also to to fill in the ranks of those who have already retired. No, so um, in that regard. Will they go against Duterte? That's that's a big question because there's this I believe there's this myth in in Philippine jurisprudence that the Supreme Court is insulated from politics, no? But I beg to differ. The Supreme Court is not insulated from the politics of its time and from the politics of partisan interest because at the end of the day the Supreme Court is still an appointed body by the president. So um it's fun. It's it's ironic, no? To think, banga. If the Supreme Court is really independent from the from the let's say from the executive, then why does it owe? Then why does its um, justices owe much of its position to the appointing powers of the president? So, politically speaking, it's an independent body. So it's still beholden, no? And if we go back to history, we have seen many instances, especially in the past 20 years, where Supreme Court appointees really protected their patrons in the executive. Case in point, Gloria. Okay, so yeah, that's the that's the fun. That's the that's the irony there. Now, will they even will the will the dog bite the hand of its master? <laughs> yeah. And I'd like to point out, sir, even as, as as someone who is not a student of political science or doesn't study it extensively, it's it seems very fishy that uh, the Supreme Court, the highest court in all the land, is kanang the people that are like ha- more than half of the people appointed in those seats are elected by the president himself. And you would be you'd you'd be likely to think nga they would have their um they wouldn't want to bite the hand that feeds them. So you, you, like. Just the fact alone, uh, more than half of them were not appo- were appointed by the president himself. You'd think that they'd have some kind of utang nalub towards the president and would, you know, ma- their decision to be swayed by the by whatever the like by the whims of the president himself. 
Yes, that's that's very true, no? Uh, it's fun. It's really about utang na loob. Because in, the, in Philippine politics, you have to remember that um, patronage politics run, is the rule of the game. No, you, you can't advance in politics without patronage. That's the sad reality. And um, well, that really brings us to this recent event of Duterte saying or claiming that he has dismantled the oligarchy, oh, a.k.a. Yeah. the interest of the Lopezes. <laughs> uh, if, if we even look up the meaning of oligarchy, it would, it would give you the meaning where it actually says that it is a government by the few. And then to think about it, these, the, the oligarchy that he's so-called dismantled, the ABS-CBN, the Lopezes, he has, the Lopezes hasn't held power ever since he sat down. And then only him and his cronies, especially um, Mr. Dennis Oy, have been getting richer and richer. His, his, um, his, his secretary, Mr. Bongo, his former police guy, see Senator Bato de Lorsa, Bato. They've been yeah. they've been put into power because of him. And then these few people are now of very huge influence into our politics, where it also gives us makes us question. The safeguards put there by the constitution, the constitutional, the the constitutional, the constitutional framers, where um, the the legislative body, the judicial body, and the executive body is very far from each other. So, sir, do you believe that these safeguards have been breached, and do you think that there should be a reform in these safeguards set forth by? the framers of our constitution? Hmm. Well, those safeguards, although ideally they should have prevented, no, they should have prevented um, um, not, not simply the rise of Duterte, but also they should have, this could have prevented nepotism, um, patronage, and of course in general what we call as rent-seeking in Philippine politics, no rent-seeking or we call it corruption. Um, it has been compromised a long time ago, even way before the, the framers of the constitution drafted the 1987 constitution. In what way has it been compromised? First, um, I believe it has been compromised simply by the way um, politics has been conducted in the Philippines, especially in the 20th century, wherein, wherein um, Professor Alfred McCoy even called this as, or colloquially termed this as, all politics is local in the Philippines, wherein um, national elections are owned by, by, by party bosses from the provinces. Let's say, for example, we have, a very prominent, we have very prominent families here in Cebu that actually commands a lot of respect and a lot of power on the national level, simply because they have a very rich province with very high voting turnout and a large voting population. So. So in that regard, you can see that um, the interests of, of Cebuano politicians also reflect um, national policy and vice versa. No? So many others have also used this tactic in the past. Uh, second, aside from politics being driven by this dynamic of local national and alliances between various families or dynasties, um, this this link between the between the or this separation and check and balances between the executive and the legislative has long been compromised by the problem of what we call congressional funds or pork barrel. No. Yes. So, 
Mm-hmm. Although although the well, although Congress has the power to to um, to set the budget, to the power of the purse, and to uh, to give appropriations for 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 whatever the government may need in terms of financial and other resources, um, ultimately the granting of of funds and favor will have to go through the office of the president, and that that's also that. That also serves as a huge power or a huge leverage on the part of anyone who sits in Malacanang to mm-hmm. actually to actually control the, the the legislature. That's why, for example, we have this um, we have this attached phenomenon to the pork barrel system. We call this turncoatism, wherein wherein um, let's say politicians who used to belong to the opposition would would simply transfer to the ruling party because they they see that the ruling party has the financial resources etc and there is actually no consequences for them transferring from one political party to another and that's a constant in philippine history philippine politics so that's i think that's one of the that's the second factor the third factor that i see that really compromises i think this is the big one that really compromises the executive and the legislative in their relationship, in their supposedly checks and balances, is the fact that the presidents themselves are heads of the parties or the political machineries that they used to acquire that office in the first place. And this creates what we call a spoil system, wherein the president, coming from, let's say, a position of power in the legislature, which is the traditional route, for um, for any would-be president in the Philippines, they would actually give out favors in elections and pro- and make promises to to um, to those who can deliver them votes, and and in the in the process of all of this, they they actually they actually um, they actually they actually consolidate their power not only not only as presidents but also as heads of the parties that run. A Congress in general, no, the Senate and the House of Representatives, and I think that's what happened with Duterte no? when he won. He is already ahead of, of of a political party, a powerful one, which is PDP Laban, and those who were opposed to PDP Laban eventually transferred to PDP Laban because they have the financial resources for for the congressmen, especially, and then of course they the the um. The president has a, has many has many favors, and he has used that favor to grant appointments, etc., to those whom he owed his position during elections. So, I think it's fun. I, it's really it's really um it's a really tragic system in that regard. But this is not exclusive to the Philippines, no. We see this practice also in in um, the United States, wherein they also have what we call a first past the post electoral system or um, a plurality vote, where where in um, winner takes all, in in the sense that um, the the candidate who has the most votes, regardless of let's say how much votes he has, in terms of um, the overall voting, so that's well, that's that's how that's how it encourages this this phenomenon that we see here. But do you believe, sir, that um, if these political parties would be institutionalized. Do you believe this would cure the problem of turncoatism? 
where they can no, they can no longer transfer political parties but instead stay with those parties and those beliefs and defend those beliefs that would be nice pero um i think the the problem is it's not just uh it's not just one reform that cures all the, the problems away that's uh that's a it's not a panacea it's not a silver bullet no so it must be a series of reforms it may these reforms may not even for example take place single-handedly in our lifetime we see legislative mill works no so it's quite a long process but it should be a series of reforms that should um that should gradually change the 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 political system but at the same time aside from legislative from the from making legislations that that promotes reforms it should be best that also um, promote a, a new political culture that is one that is friendly to these reforms because so long as the attitudes and the behaviors of the people remain the same no matter how many times you change the the, the rules of the game they will still follow the old rules no in a yeah. sense that it benefits them and in a sense that they are familiar with it rather in contrast to this new one so it reforms must be accompanied by a change of political attitudes political culture so in the way people approach um, their government etc how um, how how would these um, attitudes be changed sir um, do we start it from from our educational system mm, yes one route is the educational system wherein um, we we introduce for example uh courses not only in college but in high school regarding um human rights and not only human rights but also the constitution in general because a well-informed public especially a public that knows their rights cannot be cannot be simply um let's say cannot be simply promised whatever fancies the politicians no they they want they already know no a well-informed public already knows what they can expect from government and what they should expect from government so that's one route another route would be um how to reform this another route would be the creation of genuine political parties coming from the people themselves what we call what we call the grassroots level rather than political parties that come from and are financed by the pockets of big oligarchs no like for example let's just name drop villiar no, mm. Binay, the Aquinos, and even the Dutertes. So, so in that regard, um, we need to we need to we need to encourage people to participate in politics because Philippine politics has always been almost off limits to many other people. No? So we have, for example, now NGOs uh, and many other groups, etc. But what we really need are political parties that are engage full-time in politics because NGOs interest groups they're not full-time engaged in politics eh? yes um, so, as the yeah go what, what do you see like anang, growing up I'd see a lot of these uh, mga people mga older people or uh, generally older members of the community nga, when asked about politics they either refrain from it or it's either that or they stick to whatever whoever is most trending like uh, this is something I've noticed a lot, no? Uh, especially some mga tiguang, mga they're like, ah, so, so, I don't care about that. They're not gonna, it's not gonna do anything for us. Like, why is there disbelief 
among the the that the, the community nga it doesn't matter who is on the seat because it won't change anything for us or Japan. like what what is like is there, i also see that there is like uh, this attitude like uh, towards history and politics in general among the uh, people that are studying mga children nga. it's also unimportant and and i think nga that comes from the, what we see around us nga older people just not really caring about it and it's like it's not instilled in us as children na to care about these things because we don't care about this like we just you know we let things play out lang hmm. that's fun that's very insightful josh no um i think that's that has something to do with with the way that politics is structured in the philippines wherein those who participate in politics actually have extensive family backgrounds yeah. and the first thing that um that you notice in local politics is that you cannot be the captain of a certain barangay if you don't have the qualifications, IA, the, the family connections, no? And that has, I, I believe that has given rise to a culture of, let's say, politics as an exclusive domain for certain families. And this is, this is, this is a com very common trend in Philippine politics. For example, in the colonial period, you have families the Aguinaldos who have held positions for generations and they have the trust of their communities to run the affairs of politics for them. And so I, I believe that created uh, a culture of complacency in regards to politics simply because there's already a class of people who are specialized enough in politics that others do not need to worry themselves about politics in general. But um, as, we have, as we have noted, it really has created a, a, a divide between those who govern and those who are ruled in the sense that um, there's, um, there's this sense of entitlement coming from our politicians and we see that every day. No, we see that every day. And that's really, that's really fun. That's really problematic because we have to remember they are not nobility. You're not in the middle yeah. ages. Yeah. No? So that's, that's, part of the, that's part of the psyche that we have come to, that we have come, come to know in, in our country that politics is um, is a sort of taboo especially for ordinary people but without the signing of the political dynasty bill sir do you believe um, Duterte sees this problem and just wants to keep this problem on and on so that him and other other families that have political power could also keep their power um I don't know if Duterte and his and his family sees themselves as political dynasties, but as a political dynasty, but they certainly have the trappings of one. No, they have, for example, extensive extensive offices coming from, let's say, the the sons and daughters of Duterte, who are mayors, congressmen in their own right. So, um, will will the will they will they push for an anti-dynasty bill? Unlikely. Because that would be like shooting their interests in the foot, no? Mm -hmm. Shooting themselves in the foot. So um, that would that would not make sense from their perspective as uh, as career politicians. Um, how about support from from other congressmen? Certainly not, especially yes. those who come from who come from political dynasties. Which, by the way, according to the book, the Kingmakers, um, uh, no, the Rule Makers. Um, if I remember correctly, they estimated that about 70 to 75% of Congress is actually 
dominated by political parties coming from the provinces and from the national level that had roots in political dynasties. So a lot of dynasties in Congress. And this book came out about, what, 2009-2008. So not, not much has changed today no, in, in that landscape of politics. So this domination by what we call, what Alfred McCoy calls as an anarchy of family, this really created uh, the unique governance pattern in the Philippines, wherein um, we have the trappings of a democracy, but the the people that we can choose from are like MC uh, are like coming from a so-called universe. No, it's like Marvel, where you have only these sets of heroes, yeah. and there's there's yeah. no one else that can join them. <laughs> yeah, okay. For for years, you'd see, um, for example, uh, Villar. I remember like his name was plastered everywhere during the elections um eight years ago um you see the same faces every all the time and then like for for me as kanang like growing up like how i would identify who or who this politician is would be by their last name which like goes to prove lang, uh, polit- like the presence of political dynasties in our country is really strong no? okay like you'd always see the same last names over every year like same like or the same last name in that many different positions running for different offices Yes, uh, that's name recall. The phenomenon of name yeah. recall. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, what can you say to those that are not that interested, sir, in politics? Well, um, I can only quote from from Pericles, that great Athenian um, statesman from the from the golden days of Athens. I can only quote Pericles on that one. That um. If you, if you are not interested in politics, then politics will take an interest on you. So um, in, in, to put some context, no, you have to remember that the politics that, uh, that he was talking about is the politics of a small city with a close population as an approximation of what we call a state or, or government. So if we're not going to, to tackle politics, then one day, sooner or later, the policies of government will will actually will actually affect us in profound ways no so that's that's one of the things if we don't participate in politics then we might find ourselves disagreeing with many of these policies that we see and adversely affected by these policies so um yes, we, then, yeah, go. i was just going to say um like this is all what we're seeing a lot of now a lot of people now do not believe in like the the bad parts of the policies or like the anti-terror law because they don't see themselves being affected by it and it's like well, they're just gonna wake up one day and that's it na lang, uh, they didn't realize what they agreed to it's kind of yeah just another point to ask yeah because um dictators don't usually take your freedom away in one swipe they they do it slowly and while 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 those are those who choose to keep silent are still busy with their lives those that are losing their lives speaking out are actually the ones that's protecting the rights of the people and then what what we see in Duterte in the Duterte administration Mongol is we see him really um, fixing up the minds of his followers to fight those that are against him and his cronies so um, how do you believe sir that we could um address the problem where there's a manipulation of the followers so that these followers of Duterte would actually be the ones to do the bidding and silence the dissenters. 
it's very cult like mm, yeah um that's fun that's um that's what we call it i believe that was in comparative politics no this there was this theory proposed by a certain uh, mr sodaro wherein um he he mentioned that there are different phases of power one is direct power or the application of power from one person to another or from one state to another or state between people and then there's what we call agenda setting a more a more subtle version of power wherein the government actually controls the narrative of what can be discussed what cannot be discussed and third the most subtle form of power is um is what we would call as preference setting no it's unlike agenda setting where the government can control the narrative via saying this is what we should discuss this is not this is something that we should not discuss um the government sets here what people should should be discussed so it's like um it's like a it's like for example commercials are very subtle ways of preference setting for example soap commercials in the philippines are notorious for setting the preference of people to have whiter skin kojic soap etc so um in, in if we apply it to politics we can see that um what's happening on social media and um let's say in the radio in tv in general what well, we can see that there are agents of government that are trying to set agenda for this administration in general no so for example agenda setting is most seen in um in the way harry roque answers questions from the media in, in general today direct power can be seen for example in how government has shut down abs-cbn and try to silence critics via the threat of libel and especially now cyber libel no case in point bongo so and these are very these are very interesting aspects of of um life in general and not to mention that trolls in the internet are also drowning out um the the, the comment section of the news reports and many other pages over um especially fb and twitter no so so we can see these forms of power these faces of power being applied on a daily basis and it's really set the agenda of what the government or what the Duterte administration wants the people today to not only believe but what to expect from them in general and that's why it's very important for 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 us to have open discussions in forums not only um, not only let's say in in podcast format but also in forums that can involve a lot of other people because without counterbalance that overarching power of government in the use of those three phases of power direct power agenda setting preference setting we might we might wake up one day with, with um, let's say having no choice as to what to think because that has already been inputted to us so we need different sources of information yes. to actually allow us to form decisions that affect our lives how i see um the Duterte's, the Duterte administration's um way of politics or it's like he's done a masterclass of how to do it right how to do dictatorship right where he's done it so subtly that majority of the people don't even know that it's happening and those that know that it's happening are actually really really worried by by what's going on right now and he's he's done 
a fair he's done better than Marpas. He's done better than <laughs> than all the dictators that you could ever name. He's he's done it all in the shadows of of political correctness we have one. Or not in the sense of the correct way of speaking, but on the way how he the, how he performs his politics. So he has made a wide range of appeals coming from different sectors in society. I think um, what, one of the winning formulas for, for Duterte in winning the support of people back in 2016 was, um, was he was trying to address a problem that has already, that has already been prevailing in Philippine society. So he was, he was um, talking about war on drugs and how drugs should go away, etc. From the from the point of view of a tough one of a tough um, let's say seasoned mayor who actually curb drugs in Davao and to some degree that's true no that's true mm-hmm. but um, this appeal um, how does it how did it maintain for example such long longevity over over the years no that it's 2016 has been what four four years going five years so. Um, that really brings into question, for example, uh, what other priorities did the government do? What other what other sentiments did they tap from people? For example, I think many college students are still grateful for this administration, for the creation of opportunities in college, especially with um, in regards to state universities having free tuition. That's a game changer. No? That's a really huge game changer. But can it be maintained? We shall see. You no, know, in the long run, can it be maintained by state funds? Aside from that one, Duterte has also made appeals to the older generations in the in the sense that um, for the past three years, he has at least preserved uh, what we call economic growth. You know? So he has preserved um, the growing GDP that has been inherited by by this administration from the previous two administrations. That really set the the goals, but I think the problem now is we are seeing major cracks in in the way Duterte does governance, especially in the wake of COVID-19. We are seeing uh, major strains in government. That's why um, that's why it's quite worrying to to see uh, where this will all lead to, considering that we still have no vaccine and still no end in sight to the pandemic. So how much can this administration um, thing and I think pointed out the buying money heavily, so it will have economic repercussions later. And many econ- many um, economists have already predicted that there is going to be a problem of let's say economic recession or even a depression in the in the fourth quarter of twenty nine uh, of twenty twenty. So um, that's fun. That's that's the that's the thing about about um, how we see how we should see the government right now no? it's really under a lot of pressure and um, people are seeing that there might be an unsteady hand at the helm of government so yeah. that's really that's really um, that's really disturbing for for many of us especially those who who follow social account uh, social yeah. events on a daily basis yeah well, sir, I'd like to know what you think sir about um how this administration is releasing the the virus the come like they are like or do you think they're leveraging the virus to further their uh, political agenda or whatever plans they have 
in them because it seems like it now you know it's kind of fishy how a lot of countries that are sort of similar to our situation in terms of economy and um people but then they found a way to get out of it or us us we seem to be expanding a way to extending this um this quarantine longer and longer and it seems like a very very convenient way for them to you know to sweep under like sweep in their um laws such as anti-terror law hmm. that, that's that's very that's very funny that's very um very perceptive that yes they did Juan, they did take advantage of this one for example um international media has been criticizing the philippines lately because of its most or highly militarized response to this COVID-19 virus. And it's unique amongst the, the world, no? Where yeah. in, um, for example, in Brazil, they did not have such a response. They did not pass anti-terror laws, etc. Only in the Philippines do you see uh, that terrorism has become an issue in the midst of pandemic, no? So that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the, I think the irony here that we can see and we can see clearly that there's an there's an agenda being pushed aside from the response to the to the to the coronavirus and it has become a pretext no the the, the scare or the, the the fear surrounding the coronavirus has become a pretext to pass um, legislations like the anti terror law and um, and many other many other legislations that are becoming controversial day by day so, so far, it's still the anti-terror law, but um, we don't know what they are planning to pass in the near future. No? Because virtually, overnight, because of the coronavirus, the opposition is now unable to mobilize, which has been their greatest strength in the past. No, So, yeah. the leftist movements are no longer able to muster their numbers and to muster their support because the government now has a very legitimate reason to crack down on them in terms of let's say rallies and we have seen that in Cebu yeah, no yeah. with what happened with UP the UP, past month yeah. so it's fun it's really um it's really the perfect excuse and some would even say that Duterte did not even have to declare martial law to bring martial law into the Philippines yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. he closed it in the one and the he just used words like anti-terror law and it seems like people forget like they don't read the provisions anymore yeah, like I, I was reading, like I remember, like I can't forget hearing about the uh, writ of habeas corpus back when it, elementary when it was taught, and then like just reading through the provisions, it really shows you how, like a lot of the the, the stuff on the writ of habeas corpus is really stepped on, like um, or our basic uh, rights that we can be fine in the our bill of rights. Now there, it's very. It seems like the government is fighting the people rather than the government is fighting for the people with their law of it all. Um, in, in many instances of Philippine history, that is the sentiment, no? Um, why is that so? Because we have to remember that as, a, that as a former colony, as a colonized people, government in the Philippines for a long time has been created not for the natives but for, but for the elites and for the colonial masters that they have served here. And as a reflection of history, that really has affected the way we view politics, for example, the family system. Because many of the families that we see, for example, that are still very prominent in Philippine politics, they had their roots in the colonial times. Yeah. So these are um, intergeneration transfers of power and wealth. And they have carried this until today. 
and this really um, this really reflects in not only the way we view politics but how we view um, government in general. So it brings to question whether people still view their government as representative of themselves or representatives of those elite families. So that really creates a divide, no? That really creates a divide. And I think the, the younger generations, especially the millennials and the Gen Zs, are waking up to the reality that um, if their government does not represent them, then their policies do not reflect their needs as well. Yes. Yeah. With, with back to oligarchy, sir, sa, sa in the Philippines, where um, it has been labeled as... Like oligarchy has been one of the biggest problems here in our country because only a few people are part of the one percent. I mean, unlike 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 our neighbors like Singapore or Malaysia, where a lot a lot of its um people are actually capable, I economically capable. So, um, do you believe that if if we bring up our economy, the, the people would also want to be part of politics and would also want to take a jab at it and see if if these people and no and take down these so-called oligarchs. Well, there are movements already that are trying to reform the the political system. No, pero um, I would say that economic reforms and political reforms should go hand in hand and they cannot be separated that easily from one another um, why because for example in the philippines we see a rising middle class but does that translate into let's say for example better standards of living for the majority of the people not necessarily no we see for example the middle class being um being pushed to live in subdivisions with gated communities because they don't feel secure in their in their um in in their traditional setting which is the barangay so they don't feel secure in that one that's why they, they live in separate um, housing facilities and they try to insulate themselves from the daily life of of ordinary people that's why we bring we go back to the point of joshua earlier wherein um why do some people let's say for example the well-off and the and the older generations do not want to participate in politics i believe they don't see any point in participating in politics if they can profit more from economics or commerce no so mm. commerce is profitable here in the philippines but how do we translate that into long-term um commercial success we should translate that into let's say um political reforms as well that would stabilize the system and put in more let's say predictability which is a favorite thing for for um, businessmen right. in general. No? So they wanted stability, predictability. They wanted their assets to be protected. And, so, and I think that's one of the great disadvantages that we have here in the Philippines. Stability. We, for, for so long, we, don't ha we didn't have the stability of Singapore or Malaysia, which, um, which eventually gave rise to its booming economy. No? So that's, that's one of the key things that we have to remember about about um about economics they don't uh, they don't prosper economics doesn't prosper without a stable political system and in the philippines because of these different families etc that's going to be a problem 
So um, we're gonna transition now, sir, to um back back to Mr. Hermanes Esperon. What can you say about uh. this guy? So far as I know about um, General Esperon, he has quite a record in terms of um, his service in the Philippine military. Very well. However, he is also yeah. Oh, yeah. Very well decorated. He's very well decorated with uh, medals and such. Mm, yes, he's very decorated, but at the same time, he's also hunted by controversies of human rights violations over the over the years. No. And um, I think that's a common feature in the Philippine military nowadays and even in the past, no? where um, they are well decorated in terms of their service in the military, but also their, civi- their, their records as commanders, etc., have been marred by, uh, by, by allegations of human rights violations. And I, I believe Esperon, at the time of Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, was one of the proponents of the now, the now supplanted um, anti-terror bill that um, actually that actually that is actually replaced by the current anti-terror bi- anti-terror law, no? So so na na or na change na ang um, anti-terror law because of this um, of the 2020 nga, nga ATL and um, I believe or I I think according to his statements, no, according to his statements in the media lately. I believe he's one of the proponents for this new anti-terror law because coming from his experience as a as an ex, as a veteran of of counterinsurgency, it really has fun. It, he has a point in in let's say um, pointing out that insurgencies have not been crushed in the past because of um, less stringent measures. But the question is how how do we apply this new anti-terror law? Is it simply applied to insurgencies? Or is the government or is the administration going to apply this against their critics? In the time of COVID, it's very important that um, we have a free a free press to counter the actions of government because the because the pretext or the excuse of countering the coronavirus is prone to much abuse, no? And that's one that's that's one thing that we should take note of that in times of crisis accountability is most important where um with with also back to free presser the, uh, the ABS-CBN got closed down and this Mr. Villa Fuerte um if if you were familiar with this statement where he said that if ABS-CBN actually cared about its 11,000 employees he would sell it to him and you know um the the threat put of Mr. Dennis Oi um jumping into ABS-CBN and buying them out how how do you see this as kind of part of the plan of the the Duterte administration mm, well as for Dennis Oi there has been rumors circulating about him but he's a, I, I believe he's a very private person in general but um if these allegations are true then one day he would have to answer that one to to Congress, but so far I don't think he has done anything illegal. No, nothing, nothing that has been um, that has that proves to be a justifiable question in the courts or even um, as a point of um, discussion or inquiry in the in the legislature. But if indeed there is uh, a plan to buy out ABS-CBN, 
then that's really disconcerting in the sense that um, what would replace the biggest station on uh, in the Philippines? No, What would replace it? Would it be um, a free media that would still hold government accountable? Or would it be a so-called state media or a media that is beholden to those in power wherein um, they, they only echo the talking points of government but do not give voice to opposition and to different marginalized sectors in society. Now let's face it, ABS-CBN was not perfect. It has it had served the agenda of many politicians in the past. But to think about an alternative to ABS-CBN in a time where um, the pandemic is, is still raging and at a time when, um, let's say, the, the actions of the Duterte administration seem to be saying that it wants to consolidate power at all costs then it becomes uh, then it becomes clear that ABS-CBN is a better choice compared to whatever will come after it no um, we some might question so why why was ABS-CBN tried and all, why why is there a license for for networks that that want to transmit their radio signals through Philippine Airwaves that's because um the Philippine Airwaves is owned by the Filipino people and Congress is given power to designate those airwaves to certain private entities so they could take advantage of that. But seeing seeing what's happening right now where it's being used to silence free press, do you believe, sir, that it should be repealed in the Constitution? What should be repealed? Um, um, congressional... Yes, congressional approval for... Yes. For, uh, for airwaves, um, not necessarily because um, we have to remember that this is an exercise of sovereignty, no? Because um, aside from from the fact that this is what we call um, a crucial industry in the Philippines, uh, we need to we need to regulate this um, for for public for public good, no? For 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 the public good in general. Um, can it be, for example, can it be stricken or or taken out of the of the laws, the constitution in general? Not necessarily. Um, it would still be, well, it would still require a major shift in thinking about uh, how how media should function in Philippine society. Because a free media is doesn't necessarily mean that it's unregulated media. There's a difference, no? Free media is still regulated by government, but are given a huge leeway in the way they act. An unregulated media is not actually given any regulations or control whatsoever and it becomes a sort of a free-for-all and that becomes problematic because uh, for example who would say that um, pornography can't be aired? Right? It's the government and so in an unregulated media scene then any then anyone can simply share or 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 stream that's the thing now they stream every content that they want so that's a that's a that's a huge question and that question is now spilling over to the question of digital rights and digital sovereignty where a digital rights involves what people can do on the internet and how they should be protected on the internet digital digital sovereignty is what governments can do and should do on the internet with regards to um, information that they that they have a crucial stake in. 
So that's these are these are debates that have transformed from not only a control of airwaves but a control of information in general. Yes, as as information as data as data has become the new currency right now, it is very important that that government should protect the data and not not use it against the people itself. So, um, but there are no laws about that one yet, no? Uh, wala pa, sir. Wala. Now, we have data privacy, but it's still very, 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 um, it's still at its infancy in that regard. Uh, if you remember the Chito Miranda case, that um, his files were hacked from his hard drive, or all of these celebrity hackings of their cloud accounts, etc., it's still a huge issue because it would ask what laws would be applied. That's why we have the anti cyber, -cyber libel law. Etc. Anti-voyeurism. No. Yeah, um, I've, just a few days ago, I read online about how there was a mandate or something similar issued by the DOH, where wherein the PNP were apparently allowed to go from house to house to check for people who were asymptomatic, uh. so they could take them to private facilities and. Given the context within the context of the um the anti-terror law, it seems to me uh, it's starting to get really really fishy now from here. Like, it didn't help that um the the current PN, PNP chief have uh, somehow alluded to the asymptomatic uh, to to COVID asymptomatics as criminals in that in that statement. That was very insensitive to say so. No. And it really is, it really is um, disconcerting for ordinary people because the experiences of Tukang are still very fresh in the minds of everyone. Okay, so is this Tukang 2.0? And how do they determine who is asymptomatic, who is not? Yeah. Um, will the, the neighbors, for example, simply point to their to their um, neighbors whom they didn't like or whom they have utang and say, "Oh, that's a that's a asymptomatic person over there. Take him." Yeah, so it that, really it really creates yeah. a lot of problems. That's also um one one of the problems here, sir, about like finger pointing and red tagging. This this <laughs> this this thing has always been happening, I think before the the third administration, but has just exaggerated right now. So, um, how do we educate the people that doing those things are actually something that could remove someone's rights? That could actually strip someone of their rights because of a very toxic administration. Hmm. Well, in in that regards, well, we can we can go online, but um, to to spread advocacy, to spread awareness. But um, in in general, in this at this time, it's really it's really interesting as a dynamic as to how how to promote advocacies in a time when there is no face to face interactions, and without face to face interactions. Some of the informations that we that we post or that we share online, especially among friends, etc., get lost in the noise of social media today. So, and and that really that that burden should really fall on the most powerful institution that we have in society, which is government. But um, if the government itself is callous in its policies, then I believe that's going to be that's going to be magnified as a problem rather than solved. No, so. Um, I, I think we should first start with scrapping this proposal of the PNP going house to house 
because in the first place it's very unsafe especially for the officers and it's very um it's very divisive in in the in the in the communities in general especially in the slum areas mm-hmm. where in um there are criminal elements in the slum areas no in many not only in the slums but in many residential areas it it really creates um a sense of fear and panic especially now that the armed forces are out and about in tanks carrying high caliber weapons etc especially in Cebu City where it feels like we are under occupation mm, yeah and like it's like sir, it's like they drew the connection between how like they saw uh, early early days pa lang, people, students of UP were already protesting and then it seems like they had they have such they have so much incentive in stopping the people from protesting so Mona, they they use reasons such as the the uh, the breaking of quarantine protocols and and such to stop these protests. Or like we, like this is what they, this is what we saw in um the UP the UP protests just last month. Nga. the students were supposedly uh, practicing social distancing. They were just like you know they were there protesting. Where and all of a sudden, police in complete riot gear. Decide to just come and stop them. It really seems like to me, uh, um, it's a form of population control what they're doing with the anti-terror law, the the checking of house to house, the the extended ex- like extent extension upon extension of the quarantine here in Cebu. Yeah, yeah. I, I like to talk about that with my friends, no, and I tell them that it's like it's like the, those days when we play Dota, no way. In, um, it, it was back in our day we don't have ML we have Bota and we go to computer shops near the school and um, we always say Ate um, extend or if not extend open time <laughs> it's like that yeah. it's like that kind of thing it's, it's always open for for whatever purposes they want to extend this one either the virus is still un, not under control etc but it does provide the perfect the perfect excuse no? as you have said to to bring out the police power of the state literally in the form of the police roving and arresting people for for minor infractions let's say for example not only um up students have been arrested but also violators of quarantine have been arrested and they 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 are they're forced to perform arbitrary forms of punishment let's say for example exercises in, in front of fort fort san pedro in cebu in Plaza Independencia, and it really, it really brings the question of what rules and guidelines are they following, so that people can also be protected from death. I mean, they have they have the reason to to let's say um, to actually to actually implement these um, guidelines for quarantine, but when they go uh, when they go overboard the, the the mandate to protect the people, then that becomes a problem in itself. And yeah, I think we need to we need to go back to the question of accountability. How do we make our officials and the implementers of the the quarantine protocols under the integrated task force? Um, how do we make them accountable for their actions as well? Because for all we know, there's a lot of violations ongoing. No. Yeah. As we know that um, it's the CHR's job to actually protect our rights from these from those that infringe upon it especially from the government do you believe sir that um, a, a, pro- a proactive measure should be taken up by the chr instead of 
a reactive one where someone still has to file complaints before any action is taken? Well, yes, the, the CHR has always been, um, let's say, it has been it has been created back in the in the late 80s as a form of countermeasure against what what is perceived to be as the use of force by state forces to to such an extent that they violate the rights of ordinary people so this is a mechanism created for that but this mechanism only works simply when there is a, a complaint filed against mm. um, certain officers, etc., whether it be filed individually by, by certain persons or it be filed on behalf of these individuals via groups like Amnesty International, Gabriela, etc., no? mm. um, should the CHR take an acti a more proactive role? Um, that should be nice, but how so? Uh, in what way that it does not violate its constitutional mandate no mm -hmm. so it's fun it's um it conducts investigations etc especially in in um, areas that have that have high incidences of human rights violation especially on uh, let's say war zones or if not war zones especially in the provinces where um, peasants are constantly harassed but sadly today in the context of covid-19 CHR has has been eerily silent in the past few months. We haven't heard of CHR lately, and I think it has something to do with with um, their manpower being crippled because of COVID nineteen. And even before that, they already had um, shortages in manpower. No, in fact, one of their officers was asking me for interns back in March, and I said, "I'll see, see what I can do it." No, whoever wants to apply. So it's really fun. It's really um problematic for for CHR now, especially when they should be taking a leading role in keeping um, government forces in check when they are out and about in this time. And so it's really sad that what, whatever happened with them, uh, I think they have been emasculated and out of the scene for, for, for much of the duration of this pandemic. Um, would you also say that the Duterte administration has also taken part in the demasculation of the CHR where he's cut funds from them and also he's um, talked really bad things against the CHR and then making the people think that these people are actually protecting rebel re rebels yes certainly that has been the case for much of um, the administration no? and I find it very very persistent to counter this myth that the CHR are protecting criminals and that's that's really that's really one of the most devastating fake news of our generation, wherein you see that an institution that is supposed to be the safeguard of the people against the state has become um, the target of state of for for whatever state-sanctioned fake news, which is very which is very bad in the, in that way because it delegitimizes the CHR in the eyes of people and it really took its toll now on the CHR no? because people are not reporting to them or if they are reporting to them then um, they they may not have that, that capability they want it so um, I believe sir that this that this is all the only time that we have for today um, do you have any um, closing remarks um, 
Well, I would say that uh, to to talk about uh, politics in general, no one has to be constantly uh, monitoring what's going on in and out, uh, not only in social media, because social media, although that's the preferred platform of our generation today, um, it doesn't really give us a round view of the world. No, it doesn't really give us the, over, the overall view that we need. So I would encourage, for example, um, the the Jens the, and the others, so young, them to tune in to AM because AM has more insightful news and commentaries on local issues. Though it's in Bisaya, I understand that there's a, there's a huge general gap now between those who man AM stations and and those who listen to them. But um, I, I would encourage us to actually um, listen to the airwaves because I, I believe that the local is where the action is at instead of simply the national. No? Although we need to monitor the national as well. And also even the international because it really affects um, the way we view things. So for anyone looking to follow internet, uh, to follow public affairs, so it, it is a must that there must be constant monitoring and it will take a lot of your time. No? So that's how, that's how we should do it. And I think we have a lot of time during this pandemic. So yeah, that's it. Too much. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Um, back to Pericles. Just because you do not take an interest in politics doesn't mean politics won't take interest in you. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Paul Guy, IT Guy, and Mr. Ryan Dave Ryla signing out. Thank you so much. Thank you as well, sir.